Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Good to see everybody. Boy, those lights are, that's right, that's a bright light right there. Um, so, I feel like we're like finally starting to come back together after a moment uh, apart, right? Um, and bear with us, we seem to be perfecting our streaming, thanks to, to Sam and the team. Uh, so, trying to make that experience as good as possible when people get stuck at home, or if you want to share the services with people, obviously you want that to be good for people uh, to participate and and listen to the worship, and you want the audio and everything to be right, and so I think think we're beginning to fix some of that stuff, and so uh, if that's something you often do is share the services, um, hopefully that'll be be better and better each week. Um, Man, so I felt really compelled to, to start today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 again, Thank you, Seth, wherever you are, uh, for helping last week and preaching. That was a good word last week. Uh, but uh, I feel compelled to address something that I think is going on. Sometimes I feel like, um, you know, God is showing me something that's happening in the class. And, and, uh, and I feel like recently uh, people have been tempted to be distracted a little bit. Okay? And so I'm, I'm trying to peer at your faces through the masks to see that there's confirmation that I'm headed the right direction. I feel like people have been distracted a little bit. We, we went to Mission Focus, and for those of you that were at Mission Focus, there's always just a, a buzz afterwards, right? Like you're just excited. And, and I know, I, I talked to so many of you about decisions that you made, that, that things that God showed you, uh, the, the burden, the call uh, to evangelize and, and to do missions and to, to, to do ministry. It's always really exciting right after Mission Focus. Uh, but one of the things that, that happened to us is that right after Mission Focus, uh, COVID had its moment with us, right? And so there was a lot of people that were out over the last few weeks taking their quarantine, and, and, the, and it seemed like our group was just like half size. Um, and I don't know about you, when I got COVID, I laid in bed all day. I could hardly focus on anything. I was sore. I was tired. I was worn out. Things were foggy in my mind. Did anybody else get that? We're like... At least for a few days there, things just felt really foggy, and, and I tried to read, study, or, 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 or write, or put something together, and I could only do it in short moments because pretty soon my mind would be stolen away, and I just couldn't focus. And, um, and then beyond that, the semester started for a lot of you, right? You, you started back to school, you're figuring out your schedules, your classes, uh, getting to know new instructors, trying to figure out what it looks like to do online class uh, with, with new teachers that you don't know. Uh, the standards seem so different from in every single class, don't they? Like, in one class, the, the, the expectations seem really heavy and daunting, and then in another class, the teacher's like, we're online, we're blowing this off, let's take it easy. And, and just try to figure out the new teachers and new classmates, new schedule. And all of this serves to rob away what it was that God was doing just a month ago at Mission Focus, you know? All of these things uh, cause us to be, I don't know, uh, you know, what seems so clear, things got confusing, right? And you didn't really see, uh, maybe for, for moments here, uh, your, your place in the mission. It just got, it got distracted, it got stolen away. And 
And I felt like, I felt like January has been that way for us. And, and, and so as your pastor, uh, that makes me think, okay, well, we need to get focused again. Because this is the moment in every semester, when a new semester starts and we've got new classmates and, and new opportunity, Bible studies uh, are, are still growing. Um, in February, we're going to have two new Bible studies that we're starting on the south side of town. Um, Hannah and Nick will both have, have Bible studies in South KC. And so the, the groups are changing and there's upheaval, good upheaval, good things happening. Uh, but I do feel like this is a moment where we have to refocus and talk about what it means to help one another continue to see the mission even when things get foggy and difficult. Now, I believe that Paul had a moment like that right here where we're at. I believe that, that there was a moment where Paul was, was maybe struggling um, with, uh, with, with remaining focused. And uh, we're going to read about that today in Acts chapter 18, and we're going to pick it up in verse 4. But let's pray again, shall we? Can we do that? Are you guys with me? Everybody's got your Bibles open, Acts chapter 18, your fingers there, ready to take notes. Uh, if you need help, if I'm moving too fast with the PowerPoint, remember the PowerPoint is available for you to download in PDF. It's right there on the website. Go to kaya.live, and you can follow along there, and that'll help you take notes today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I need you. Um, uh, it's been just a really busy couple weeks, and trying to jump back into uh, the, the busy schedule of ministry life, it is difficult, and at times I, I do feel distracted myself. And, and so, Lord, we're here with your book open, and just as Uriah prayed, we need it to pierce us. We need it to be um, pr pressing upon our lives. We need to own it. We need to believe it. And, uh, and Lord, our mind, our, our flesh is so, is so counter to that uh, a lot of times. We, we, our, our mind, even just in listening to preaching, our mind can wander to other things, and and we can lose focus, and, and the thing that we were supposed to hear, we let our, our flesh steal that away. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be attentive today as we talk about uh, what it looks like to be refreshed by, by friends in ministry, and what it looks like to be rejected in our evangelism, and then what it looks like to watch you bring revival. I, I pray that you would show us that clearly from your word today. It would inspire us, and it would change us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4. Speaking of Paul, now, now just a little bit of background. Remember, Paul's been away from his friends for a little bit. Remember, he comes in contact with Aquila and Priscilla, and those are the most friendly faces that he's seen in a long time because his friends, uh, his dear ministry friends, his missions friends, have been serving in other places. And they've had their own agenda, and he's kind of done his own thing, and he finds himself here in Corinth preaching the gospel day in and day out without his buddies that he set out with. And that can be difficult, right? Here we are in verse 4. Paul, it says, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So here we have Paul doing the work of persuading the Jews and the Greeks that he was coming in contact with. And so if you don't know about Corinth, Corinth was a Greek city that had a huge uh, 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 populace of Jewish people living there. That's why that there was a synagogue. It's a major metropolis city in this part of the world. And so he is going into the synagogue to introduce the Jewish people to the gospel. I mean, this would be the first time that they're ever really hearing. Uh, they maybe have heard the name of Jesus and, and uh, the, the kind of rebellions that surround his name in terms of the Jewish faith, but they would have heard the gospel with, its, in, in, with clarity. And so Paul's there to preach the gospel. And in so doing, he's also preaching the gospel to the Greeks. And, and the truth of the gospel is beginning to flow out and to permeate the community. 
But in doing this, we've seen that he's been at this a while, right? He's established a, a business there. He's working in tent making. He's been in Corinth for a little while. And what we're going to see is that the gospel isn't really taking. Like, like, people aren't really receiving it the way that maybe he anticipated. And that would, just like for all of us, bring us to a place where uh, we're kind of exhausted, right? Has anybody ever felt that way in ministry where you just feel like you're, you're hitting your head against the wall? Things aren't happening the way that you imagine them unfolding. And again, I think that we maybe are in that place. Like maybe we thought we'd have a little bit more zeal at this, at this moment in, the, in 2021 than we actually do, right? Maybe you felt a little bit stunted or stalled out in the things that God has shown you. And, and that can be really discouraging. It can be difficult. And it's really, really good to know that we have friends in the ministry. It's really, really good to know that as we go and we reason with the lost and we give ourselves to that work, that, that robs us of a lot of energy, a lot of time, a, a lot of emotion, of our emotional capacity that we have gets drained really easy investing in people. People aren't easy, and we get tired. We get worn out, and we lose focus. And in those moments, we recognize that we need our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, uh, most. And so when we look at verse 5, look at what it says. And then Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia. Here they are. They, they show up. They show up to Corinth, and it says here that Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. So after ministering, ministering for quite some time in the absence of his friends, Silas and Timotheus' arrival was just the refreshing Paul needed to press in further to his ministry, to not relent, to not give up, and even to go harder than what he was going before. And many times in ministry and life, we find ourselves at a low place, a foggy place, a tired place, a forgetful place, an emotionally unsteady place. And, and, and we find ourselves in seasons of loss even. And I know that's true for people in our ministry right now. We find ourselves in these seasons of loss, and it almost as feel, it feels as though your identity is being robbed from you. And in those times, it's most important that we can turn around and find that our friends have our back. This is when the presence of a friend is more welcome than ever before. You can oftentimes take your ministry friends for granted, right? You can. It's, it's really easy to do, especially when you're busy. I know I take you guys for granted. I'm sure you guys take me for granted. It just go, it's like that. When you're trying to win souls, a lot of times you're distracted. You take your friends for granted. You, don't, you, you turn around. You're in a hard place, and you turn around, and your friend is there you're reminded of just how important they really, really are. And so he was pressed back into ministry. You know, he was before Paul was pressed in his circumstance, and now he's pressed in the Spirit. So Paul goes right back into preaching with a renewed vigor. And what I want to do right here is briefly address what it means to be a good friend. Is that okay? Yes. We all need good friends, but more importantly, we need to be good friends. We can't expect other people to be the friends that we want them to be unless we're first willing to be the friends that we need in our life to others. And so it's important to ask ourselves the question, what makes a refreshing friend in ministry? What makes for a refreshing friend? And how can we be one? How can we be refreshing friends to one another? So the first thing we want to look at is this idea that a friend is someone who strengthens, is ready to strengthen. Someone who's ready to strengthen the hand of another person. When David was, uh, uh, King David, uh, before, he, before he took the throne, uh, he was in, uh, you know, was a servant in, in Saul's house, King Saul's house. I don't know how familiar uh, people in the room are with this story. 
But David was just a, you know, a, a lowly servant of King David, I mean of King Saul, and Saul was jealous of King David, right? You guys remember this story, how, how, how jealous Saul was of the accolades that David was getting in ministry? And, and so King Saul's heart gets hardened towards him, and uh, even to the point where he wants to kill David, and he has to flee. And so Saul threatens his servant, David, and, uh, and David takes flight into the woods. And this is when his faithful friend went out to meet him. And it says in 1 Samuel 23, 16, And Jonathan, Saul, uh, Saul's son, okay, Jonathan, this is David's friend, who's also the son of Saul, arose and went to David in the wood and strengthened his hand in God. The phrase uh, strengthened his hand means he provided with him with strength to carry on. That's what that means. So Jonathan did this in God. It says it strength, he strengthened his hand in God. Right? In other words... What Jonathan had was the faith in God necessary to strengthen David's hand in God. Verse 17 says, And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of, of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee, that also Saul my father knoweth. Okay, so what does it look like to strengthen the hand of your brother or sister in Christ when they're in that place? What does it look like to do that? Now, we can break down this passage of this dialogue with Jonathan and, and, and David and find out what it looks like to strengthen the hand of someone else. And so the first thing that we see that Jonathan says to David is, fear not. Fear not. Saul won't find you. In other words, a good friend in their communication shows another friend a faith bigger than their circumstances. He's, he's showing David, look, man, listen to me. We can believe the Lord because the Lord is bigger than this situation. This situation, it seems daunting, it seems difficult, it seems hard. I mean, I mean has any, I've never been hunted down. Like, no, like I've never experienced someone, someone wanting to take my life, I don't think. I'm trying to remember some of the fights that I've been in, but I don't... Maybe someone expressed they wanted to kill me, but, but I haven't ever had someone actually hunting me down. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty difficult circumstance that probably surpasses any of the circumstances anybody in this room is facing. I'm just going to take a stab in the dark on that one, right? But man, how powerful it is when we're in a tough and difficult place to have a friend that says, listen, God is bigger than what you're facing. And we all need friends like that, and we need to be friends like that. That's the type of thing that we need to be communicating to one another if we're going to successfully refresh each other in the ministry. What else does he say? He says, thou shalt be king. Listen, friends show us how to have hope and faith in the future. That things will get better. That God will see us through this trial. There's hope in every single breath that we take. That God is with us, and he's, and he's making a way for us in ministry and in life. That's the kind of friends that we need, and that's the kind of friends we need to be. So he tells him, thou shalt be king. He's speaking truth and hope into his life. Do you do that to your friends? Do you speak hope into the life of your friends? When you communicate with them, and they're in a low place, do you remind them that tomorrow will be better? That God's not done with them yet. 
that this, this, this circumstance will not hold them back and that there is a tomorrow in which we're going to have better ministry, a more, a more refreshed Right? We're, just, we're not done. And we need to be spoke, speaking hope into one another's life because if we don't have hope, what do we have? What do we have if we don't have hope? And then he continues on and he said, I shall be next unto thee. Friends, stand with us in our struggles and our victories. Friends, stand with us in our struggles and our, and our victories. And so here, Jonathan's standing with David in a time of struggle. Clearly, this is a moment of struggle for David, hiding away in the woods. But there's coming a time where he's saying, look, you're going to have victory. You're going to be king, and I'm going to be standing with you then too. And so in the high and the low places, a friend ought to stand with the person that they're refreshing in ministry. A friend ought to stand with you in good times and bad, and we need to be communicating that. And so that leads us to our key point number one. When a friend stands in faith, it quiets all fear. Are you that kind of friend? I know, it's, I know it's difficult to be with people who are having a hard time. I know it's difficult. It's hard to know what to say. But sometimes it's good enough to just stand with them. You know, I'm, I, I can't help, like in this moment, I feel a little bit distracted because as I look around the room... I've known a lot of you long enough to have waded through very difficult circumstances with you. And trials in your life, difficulties that you faced, I've been able to witness them and to stand with you. And I have to be honest with you, I don't always have the words to give. I don't always have the things to say. I don't always know how to speak hope. But you know what I can do is I can stand with you. And I can tell you that no matter what you face, I'm going to be with you in that. Whether it's a trial or a victory, I'm here for you. I'm your friend. I love you. I adore you. I would die for you. I can do that for you. And there's something about that that just causes fear to disappear. And there's some of you in this room who've done that with me. And this is the kind of ministry that we want Kaya to be, where, where true fellowship looks like us standing with each other, even in the most difficult times and seasons. And I'm hoping even as we're talking about this right now, you're vowing in your heart before the Lord that you're going to be that kind of friend. You know, also good friends don't put up with faithlessness. They don't. You know, that's what accountability is about, is about faith, is about cultivating faith in one another. And I think a lot of times we use the word fellowship and friendship And we don't understand fully what accountability means because you can't have friendship and fellowship before the Lord without accountability. You know, a lot of times we like to, especially young people, like to enter into these like accountability packs with one another. Hey, will you be my, we use this phrase, accountability partner. And so that friend enters into our life and, 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 and one of the things that you do is maybe you create boundaries for that accountability. Maybe there's a structure for that accountability or whatever. Or maybe you like it loosey-goosey and it's just like, hey, just rem- remind me to you know, remain in God's word daily. Or whatever it might be. Keep me in check in this area or whatever. But so many, of the, of the, so many times when we say that to one another, we don't actually mean it. And you ask your friend to do that. You ask your friend to hold you accountable in some area. And the truth is you're really just lying 
because you know a, a month later that you're going to reject their accountability. You know, you can't actually have accountability unless you're both in agreement that there's a standard by which to live. You're both in agreement that you're going to be up in each other's business. That there's, there's nothing that you're going to hide from one another. This is a, it's like a social contract that you're entering into. And if one person breaks that contract, there is no accountability. You understand that? And so if at, one, if at some point in the accountability partnership, one person says, I don't want to be accountable today, the entire thing falls apart. But here's the deal. You still stand accountable before the Lord. You're still accountable. Whether, you, whether or not that person is holding you to it, or you've, you've disappeared, or, or you know, you've let that thing die on the table, God is still holding you accountable. And you will answer for it. That's the funny thing about accountability. We want to have accountability partners, and that's fine. We should have them. And that, that should be a part of our fellowship and our friendship. But the truth is, the real accountability is the fact that God sees every freaking thing you do. He is your ultimate accountability. So whether David or Nick or Alex or whoever lets me down in accountability, the truth is God's watching my every move. And he knows whether or not I got in his word this morning. He knows whether or not I looked at that thing on the internet. And I will answer for it. So whether I'm accountable now or accountable later, I will be accountable. And so here's the deal. Part of this friendship and part of this standing, what it has to look like is that we have to agree together with one another that we're going to be in each other's business and we're going to hold each other accountable to be full of faith. Believe the Lord. Believe him. Believe him for his promises. Believe him for his character. In this way, the best kind of friend is going to put God over you. They're going to rat you out. That's what a good friend, friend does. They're going to rat you out. They're going to tell on you. At a minimum to God, and if necessary, to a pastor that shepherds your life. And you can't be mad about that. Like, I'm going to just say right now, there ain't nothing that can happen in this ministry that I haven't already seen. And so if someone doesn't know what to do in terms of counseling you and holding you accountable, if they come to the pastor to get help, that's an acceptable thing to do. Because that's part of our social contract of being together, calling ourselves the college and young adult ministry, being discipled, being in relationship together. Part of that contract means that the pastor is going to hold you accountable too, and he wants to help. He wants to help. So friends get to do that. They get to rat each other out. They don't get to gossip about each other. They don't get to take information to people that, that don't need to be privy to that. We protect one another. Friends do that too. But we got to hold each other to, to faithfulness. we got to plead on each other's behalf. we got to do right by one another. Because good friends stand in faith. Okay, so what else? What else? If you want to be a good friend, you need to be someone who's ready to fight. Yeah? You need to be someone who's ready to fight. You know, I used to get in fights a lot. Havala likes it when I tell these stories. She made fun of me just the other day because I told one of these stories. But I used to, I used to scrap a little bit. Um, I don't know if people do that anymore. But I grew up in the streets, so 
you can, yeah, you can, you can laugh, you can laugh. But I, I used to get in fights, and, and really, I, I, was never, I was never one to enter into a fight because someone uh, offended me, like offended my sensibilities. I, I, like, I, I had a pretty thick skin, except for where it concerned my friends, you know? And so, I, for good or for bad, uh, I found myself in most of the fights because someone had offended the character or the well-being of a friend of mine. And that's why I'd find myself in situations, you know, where I, where I got a little bit wild. And we ought to not like that. I mean, if we can avoid fisticuffs, that's always a good thing, okay? That's a, as Christians, we want to avoid fighting. You recognize that, right? That was, the, that was the old me. I'm not advocating for that. But you know, in Kaya, there are many people who have very wonderful hearts and, and they love each other, dear friends, wonderful servants. But the question is, are you a friend of convenience? A friend only when things are comfortable? Like, you're close to others only when things are easy and the fellowship is fine and fun? Or are you a friend ready for a fight? Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I love that statement. A brother is born for adversity. In other words, the very purpose of their being is to engage in warfare. I like that. I want to be that kind of brother to you, and I hope that you guys are willing to reciprocate that within the family. And that leads us to key point number two. When friends stand to fight, there is no obstacle too big. When you know that your friend has your back, man, you're ready, you're ready to go to war. You're ready to battle. When I know that you guys stand with me and we share the same mission and the same purpose, there's nothing I feel like I can't do. You guys bring that kind of refreshing into my life, and we ought to be sharing that, and we ought to be that kind of friend for one another. Ministry is war, and we have an adversary. In the battle, we will have, all have moments, all of us, moments of weariness and loss. And when those moments come into our lives, we need friends who will stand in the gap and fight with faith. When our strength is failing, we need friends who come alongside us and call us to remember the one who we serve. I mean, because ultimately, the one who wins the day, the one who wins the battle is Christ, right? But, but the friends that are ready for war are going to remind us of that. These are friends who are willing to meet with you and to talk on the phone and counsel you in moments of crisis. These are friends that weep with you and pray with you. You guys remember in Exodus chapter 17, when the nation of Israel is going out to fight the Amalekites? You guys know this story? It's such a good story. They're going out to fight the Amalekites. And this is the way it goes. I never looked at it this way, but I want to point it out to you. I, I started to see it in these terms. So this is the story. This is the story where Joshua is going into battle with the nation of Israel. And Moses retreats up to prayer on a hill. And in that way, Moses' prayer is him advocating as a friend on Joshua's behalf. I never thought, thought about it that way. That, that Moses is intervening, and he's, the way he's warring is to pray for the nation of Israel. And he's doing that on behalf of Joshua and the troops. Now, he's not engaging in the battle itself, but he's engaging in the battle. You understand? And so he's up on the hill, and if you guys remember the story right, he's holding up his arms before the Lord. And when his arms are up in faith, and he has the strength to have his arms up in faith, they win. The battle is being won. 
right? They can see that, that they're, they're, the, the nation of Israel is overcoming the troops of the Amalekites, and, there's, and their winning is beginning to take place. But have you ever, I don't know about you, but whenever we do in the prayer meeting, where you, like, we, we lay hands on someone, and you hold your arm out, and your arm is on somebody like this for more than like two and a half minutes, if you're as weak as me, there's a point in the praying where you're just like, Your arms grow tired. And so it's in this story that we see Aaron and her go to hold up the arms of Moses because his strength is failing him. And they're holding his arms up. And they're, they're setting stones nearby him to brace him up. And they're holding his arms up. And they're there for him. And just as Moses is there for Joshua, they're there for Moses. You see how this works in ministry? Do you see how this works in fellowship? This is how we have to be there for each other. We've got to be ready for the fight. We've got to be ready to engage in warfare. Next, what makes a good friend? is Someone who's ready to die. Things just keep getting tougher and tougher, right? As like in the beginning, I was just standing, and now you got me dying? And you want, that's the kind of friend you want me to be? Yeah. See, ultimately, the very best friends will lay down their lives for one another. Jonathan, or Jonathan, John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. It's the greatest love. It's, it's magnified in the sacrifice of giving up your life. Giving up your, your, your actual life. You know, there's many uh, people that, that in the faith will never come to a place where they have to lay down their life for a friend, right? I mean... I've, I've never actually, I've never actually witnessed that. I've never experienced that. I don't know, I don't know of anybody who's laid down their life for another person. Um, I've, I've seen them in movies, right? And the reason they're in movies is because it's the greatest kind of love, right? It's someone who wants to lay down their life for another person. I've never really witnessed that. And I anticipate that I'll probably never have to actually lay my physical life down on the line. I won't have to, to my heartbeat won't have to stop on someone else's behalf. Maybe, maybe it will. I don't know. I, I doubt it, though. But it's not entirely unheard of. But the real question here for us is, do you live like you're willing to give your life for your friends? You know, it's really easy to say, I would die for you. It's a really easy thing to, to, to make these very grand statements, very romantic statements in ministry, like I'm willing to die for you. But the truth is, the evidence of whether or not that's true is manifest in your day-to-day -day life the way that you treat the people that you say you love. I can tell who would die for me by the way that they treat me in ministry. I can see their zeal and their love for me by the way that they sacrifice their well-being day by day. 1 John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The word ought here means we should. And not just we should, we should because we're indebted to do so. That's what, that's what it's telling us, is that we're indebted to doing this. Like, this isn't really an option. It feels optional, because you'd much rather watch Netflix than serve your brother and sister in Christ. You met, rather than going and weeping with them or calling them to check in on them, we'd much distract ourselves with some other activity. 
But listen to me. When we say we ought to, what we really means, it mean is you should because you're indebted to your brother and sister in Christ because of what God did by sending his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins. We are indebted to one another. We are bound to one another. This isn't really optional for us. Saying you would give your life for your friends is just conjecture. Daily sacrificing yourself is the declaration that that's actually true. Key point number three. When a friend forfeits or sacrifices their well-being, it reflects the greatest kind of love. Are you that kind of friend? Are you that kind of friend? So Paul is pressed to preach because his friends show up. When your friends show up, do you want to preach all the more? I'd really like to think that that's true. And when you show up and you have your friends there, do they, do they want to press into ministry? Do you bring that, them that kind of refreshing? I hope so. So he's pressed to preach, and he does. And we should too. And we preached in the synagogues, he faced rejection, and we will too. When we face rejection, it's crucial that we get a proper perspective. Okay, so now we're going to shift gears, can we? We're going to shift gears from this conversation about being a good friend, and now we're going to talk about what it means to face rejection in our evangelical ministry. Okay? So verse 6. So he's preaching. He's, he's refreshed. He's excited. He's pressed in the spirit. He goes back into the synagogue, right? And he's preaching his guts out here. And he's giving it his all. And he's reasoning and he's persuading and he's calling people to Jesus Christ. And they reject him. It says, verse 6, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. So, so Paul preaches in the synagogues. And he preaches his, these piercing words. And what's reciproca reciprocated from the Jewish people is blasphemy, hatred, vitriol. And it's not, the thing is, it's not like Paul hasn't been rejected before. If you've been with us through Acts, Paul is almost always just getting rejected. Right? I don't know if you guys remember, you know, what it was like for him in Philippi. Right? But he was just always getting rejected. Why was this so piercing? Have you guys ever experienced this where it's like, like you've been rejected before, and in times past it didn't bother you, but there's that one moment where you're like emo emotionally vulnerable, that one moment in ministry, that one person that you were trying to share the gospel with, and the way that they treated you, it just threw you into a spiral. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't know that, in ministry, in time, you're going to come to a place where just certain people in certain situations, they, really, they just cut deep. It's difficult. It's hard. And here, Paul faces one of those situations. He's really hurt by this. The more excited you are to minister, the greater the potential that it'll be for, for ministry to sting. The more zeal and focus and, and, and energy that you put into something, the greater the potential is for painful rejection, right? We have to have a healthy uh, perspective on rejection. And here are some things to consider. First, when the lost reject Christ, they actually are opposing themselves. And I think we often think that rejection has something to do with us. You know, like you weren't handsome enough for that person to come to Christ. Right? Like, I didn't say all the, I didn't say all the right things. We give ourselves a really hard time when we get rejected and, and the gospel gets rejected. We're hard on ourselves. Sure, you know, sure, the gospel is, uh, it's counterintuitive to the flesh. Right? So like, 
you know that, that people, by their very nature, do not want the gospel because it means the death of self. Like, it has huge implications. And so you have to first and foremost recognize that people just don't want it because the flesh is resistant. The truth is, though, that when people reject the gospel, then they're actually just working against themselves. Right? Their soul is angry at them. <laughs> right? Their flesh might be in favor of rejecting the gospel, but their soul is angry because what it does is it condemns them to a life separated, an eternal life separated from God. They oppose themselves. They become their own worst enemy. And while this is grievous, understanding that relieves us of having to take the offense. The only offense here is how they offended their own soul by not choosing forgiveness and eternal life. That's the only real offense. And so key point number four, in the work of evangelism, many will reject the message. It's not about you. You've got, you have to get that, guys. And here's the deal. Like, if this is you never have to face, well, then you're not doing your job. Like, if I'm talking about this, and this is just going over your head, and you're thinking, well, I can't think of a time where I talked to someone about the gospel and they rejected me, well, it's because you're not talking about the gospel, right? That's, I mean, if you're going to be doing the work of an evangelist in time, you're going to face rejection. And the more you do it, I mean, it's not about a batting average, but I'm telling you, there's going to be a lot of whiffs before you get a home run. It's just how it goes. Because people's flesh is in opposition to the gospel. They're afraid of it. But here's the deal. As you preach the gospel, you're going to face rejection, and you've got to tell yourself, you've got to tell yourself, it's not about you. 1 Samuel chapter 8 um, you know, for a long time, the nation of Israel had done really well with Samuel as the prophet and the high priest over the nation of Israel. Things were going well. Forty years of peace they'd been in. That's like unheard of in the nation of Israel. If you've read through the Old Testament up to this point, it was like fights and battles and skirmishes constantly. And then Samuel steps in and God is with Samuel. And God uses Samuel. And then at the end of this 40 years, the nation of Israel is looking around. They're like, you know what we could really use is we could really use a king. Because they're looking around at the other nations and they say, they all have kings. They've got kings. And we kind of like that monarchical system. We like that. And uh, we, could, we could really use that. And, you know, Samuel goes to God and he's really bummed about it. He's, he's like sad. Verse 6 of chapter 8, 1 Samuel 8, 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord, and listen to listen what the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all they say unto thee. Let them have their way. Turn them over. Let them have their way. Turn them over to their own devices. Let them offend themselves. You see the parallel here? Let them offend themselves. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. You understand that? This, is the, this truth that God spoke to Samuel is crucial. It's crucial. And it's the same thing that God's speaking over our lives too, if we're being evangelical. That's the, that's the presupposition here again. Like, what, if you're opening your mouth with the gospel, you're going to face this moment. And God's going to speak over your life. Hey, child of God, son, daughter, listen to me. I know. 
If, if anyone knows how to be rejected, it's the Son of God. He knows how it feels. He knows the sting. And it gives him the authority to speak to us and say, listen, listen, son. Listen, my, my beautiful daughter. They have not rejected you. They've rejected me. And they've only ever just rejected me, so it's okay. I'm with you. I stand with you. It's okay. And we have to remind ourselves of that truth. Okay, listen to me. As the, as the story continues on, what we see here is Paul was pressed in his spirit to testify to the Jews in Corinth, but now he's pressed in his spirit to testify against them. The script has been flipped. Sorry, that sounded like Alan Shelby. So, listen to what it says. He shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be, be upon your own heads. I am clean. Paul shakes his raiment, which is a sign that he's done evangelizing to the Jews. The, whatever consequences come, that's on them. Paul had genuinely done all that he knew how to do. Has anybody ever else felt that way in ministry when you're evangelizing? You feel like you've done everything you can possibly do. You've come to an end pass, right? You've done everything you can do. I've spoken the truth. I've prayed. I've, 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 I've been for, there for them. I've met them for coffee. We have taken them out. They've come into my home. You know, I've, they've, I've introduced them to my family. I've befriended them. They're, this person is truly my friend or this people group. Like this, this, this community that I'm ministering to, I've given them so much time and energy and life and stewardship. I don't know how to give them anything else. And you come to an end pass. And sometimes you actually have done all you can do to reach out to someone or to a community. And you've got nothing left to offer them. Everything has been said. Everything has been done time and time again. And the work feels dead. In these moments, listen to me, it's okay to walk away and trust their soul to the Lord in prayer. And this is sometimes really hard to do. I've seen people hold on to ministries too long because they're afraid to do this. They're afraid to let go. They're afraid to trust the Lord, but we've got to do it. It's not easy to commend someone to the Lord, but it's a part of ministry. Key point number five, in the work of evangelism, many works will be unresolved. We hate, we hate when things are unresolved, don't we? We want resolution. We want things to feel right. We want things to, to work out right. We want our, our, our every dream and imagination to come to fruition. It just doesn't work that way, especially in ministry, because we're dealing with people. We're dealing with souls. We're dealing with, with free will. It doesn't always work out that way. In the work of evangelism, many works will be unresolved. Trust those works to Christ. Trust them to God. Leave them at his doorstep. That's crucial. That's crucial. Do you have the faith to do that? Because listen to me, if we don't learn how to do that, we'll never be able to do the next thing, and that's to keep working. If you can't, if you can't let go of a work that's, not, that's dead, I mean, maybe you, you've done the job of, of planting the seed, or you've done the watering, and maybe, 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 just maybe, that in time, Christ will bear fruit in that person or in that community, Maybe he'll do it, but that's up to him because you've done everything you can do. And your job is to keep working. And if you stay there, 
and you keep tilling that ground that won't produce, well, then you're going to never have the opportunity to go find another place to work. You've got to have this mindset. We are, we're kingdom focused. We work for the man. We work, work for his good pleasure, and his good pleasure is souls. And if I work and I till this ground and it's not producing fruit, then I want to find a ground that will. So we have to keep working. Just because he was done ministering to the Jews in Corinth doesn't mean he was done ministering. Verse 7, And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So Paul knew his calling was to be a fisher of men. And when the fish weren't biting, he, didn't, he knew he didn't have the luxury of calling it a day. This is how old men fish. You reckon, they go out like four in the morning, five in the morning, and they go fish because they have nothing else to do. It's, like a, it's an act of convenience and comfort. They just want to sit out there and just piddle around. This is what old men love to do, piddle around. And they go out there, and you hear, you hear it all the time. Oh, they just, they're not biting today. And so what do they do? They load everything back up into their truck, and they go and they meet their friend for breakfast at hy V. And they, like 6 o'clock, they're eating breakfast. Like 6 a.m., they've got a cup of really bad coffee, and they're eating breakfast at the local grocery store. That's mainly because you can get a plate of breakfast food like this for $2.35. But that's how, isn't that, that's how old men do And you know what? We do the same thing in ministry life. We do the same thing. fighting. Ah, I guess I'll go piddle somewhere else. Right? And it can't work that way. We've got more work to do. So if the fish aren't biting here, well, guess what? I'm rowing across the lake. I'm going, I'm, I'm getting in my car. I'm going to a new pond. Because the my life is I have to win souls. I'm, I'm hungry for it. I'm desperate for it. It's the thing that, that, again, it preoccupies my mind and my thoughts. It's what I do. It's my job. It's my occupation. I'm not, I'm not retired. I don't get to retire. Paul simply changed his location and tried again. In this case, he went next door, which I think is great. He just, he just literally went next door. This guy's house joined hard to the synagogue. This, this guy named Justice, it's interesting, he's a Gentile, he's a Greek. And, uh, and, and he, so he wasn't Jewish, but he, just like remember early on in Acts, we met Cornelius, and he was a, what they re refer to as like a, um, oh, what's the, what's the term? I'm, I'm blanking for a second. A God-fearer, a God-fearer. He was a God-fearer. In other words, he sympathized with the God of, of the Jewish faith, and he wanted to learn more about it, and he wanted to worship that God, but he was rejected by the Jewish people. He was always kind of just on the outside. And so he loved the God of the Bible. He loved the Jewish God, and so his house joined hard to the, to the synagogue, right? That's, like, that's cool, man. So Paul recognizes that, and he goes next door, and he preaches, preaches the gospel to justice, and justice comes to know Christ. You know, Paul may have been frustrated by the failing of his witness to the Jews, but he would not be deterred from preaching. He wouldn't be. So that leads us to key point number six. In the work of evangelism, doors close. They do. Doors close. But that just means it's time to initiate new endeavors. That's all that that means. It's time to initiate new endeavors. We've got to trust those situations to Christ. Oh, wait. Is that right? 
Oh, I didn't copy and paste this part. This, is, this slide is wrong. In the work of evangelizing, doors will close, right? Are my notes different than this? How did this happen? You can write that. Trust, trust those to Christ. But, but I think the more appropriate thing is what's here on my notes, and that is we just, need to, we just need to open new doors. We just need to find the new open doors. We need to initiate new endeavors. That's the more accurate key point. I apologize. You know, it's been a busy week. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, I charge thee therefore before God, He's, this is Paul talking to Timothy, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they, when they will not endure sound doctrine. Anybody relate to that? That's the age in which we live. They won't endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their hearts from the truth and shall be turned to, 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 uh, to fables. And that, that's literally a description of our society, the world in which we live, the America in which we believe. That's, that's the description. But listen to what it says. Despite all that, watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. So despite the fact that people are going to reject you and that things aren't going to go the way that you imagine them to, your job is to just keep preaching. That's your job. And so just because one door closes, that doesn't mean anything more than it's time to initiate another opportunity, to go to another person, to find another fishing hole, to go into another community, to divide your Bible study and send someone here or there, and to think strategically. It's okay to do that. Think strategically, full of faith. God's going to use me. I'm going there, and God's, and God's going to work. And if he doesn't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my tackle box, and I'm going to get into my truck, and I'm going to go to a new place to fish. That's what I'm going to do. Next, how do we deal with rejection? Well, we have to know that God is working even when we're not. Verse 8, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, uh, hearing, believed and were baptized. Okay, now, there's, I, I, granted, there's a little bit of lack of information here. I mean, what happens? Paul goes next door to Justice's house to preach the gospel. And what, what is implied from the text is that the, the chief priest, the guy in charge of the synagogue, sneaks away from the, the mass of people that had rejected Paul, the ones that were blaspheming God. He sneaks away from the angry mob, goes next door to where Paul's at, sits down and listens to the gospel and receives it. There's a strange turn of events. I mean, what we see by the end of the chapter is he's no longer the chief priest. Someone else is. He's stepped down. He's literally given up everything. His job, his occupation, his reputation, his standing in the Jewish community, all up to go next door and to get the gospel that he had previously rejected. the point? What is it that we have to learn from that? Key point number seven. In the work of evangelism, when our work ceases, God, God works, uh, God's work continues. His work continues. Just because we can't see what's happening doesn't mean he's not at work. 
Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God finishes what he starts. He doesn't give up so easily. Okay, so listen to me for a moment. If you can just put yourself in, Chris, uh, in Crispus's shoes, it's very, it would be very difficult for the chief priests of the temple, uh, of, the, of the synagogue, in the midst of that mob and all that hatred, to say, hey, I'd like to listen some more. So the pressure of the crowd kept him from doing the thing that God was calling beginning in his heart in that moment when Paul was preaching in the synagogue. Something was happening in Crispus's heart. Something that Paul couldn't measure. He couldn't see it with his fleshly eyes. He couldn't, he couldn't discern it. There was no way that he could. But a seed had been planted in the life of a A seed had been planted. And maybe someone else watered. But it's God's responsibility to save people, to bear fruit. That's not our job anyway. Like, we're actually relieved from that duty. Our job is to simply plant the seeds and to water them. It's God's job to bring the increase. And he does that. He does that without us. The farmer doesn't make the plant grow. He just creates the environment where it can. And then he goes to bed at night and he sleeps. And while he sleeps, a plant grows. It's not our responsibility to bear fruit. That's God's. It's our, jo uh, our job and our responsibility to open our freaking mouths and trust him with the rest. And that's what this is about. Is God does things. He's invisible. Did you know that? He's invisible. And he does things outside of our sight. And he works in the hearts of men even when we can't see that he's doing it. So here's, a, here's our conclusion. Are you a good friend? Ministry's hard. It's hard. I mean, if you're doing it right, it's hard. And we need friends. We need allies in one another. But the question is, are you a good friend? Are you the friend that Scripture de describes? Are you the friend that is willing to stand, to fight, and to die? Are you a friend that is a, a refreshment to the brethren? Here's another question. Do you have the right perspective on rejection? Or do you find yourself getting anxious, insecure, and shutting down when things don't go your way in evangelical ministry? When you share the gospel with your family and they've rejected you time and time and time again and then you grow frustrated and then you treat them poorly. Has anybody else fallen into that cycle before? Where you feel like you can't make breakthrough with the people that you love the most. It's so frustrating. And then you start acting frustrated. You don't want to get there. We've got to learn how to, get to, to, to accept rejection and to endure on and to trust the Lord. And if you recognize that you struggle with rejection, well then, let's get prayer today. If you struggle to be a good friend, well, let's get prayer today. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I'm going to ask this final question. There's some of you who are just like Crispus, okay? Listen to me. Listen very carefully. There's a lot of people in here, I, I don't recognize your faces, and so I'm, I'm kind of speaking to the people I don't know very well. But maybe you're here because a friend invited you, or I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how you got here, but I want to say this to you, and this is crucial. So as people are moving around, don't be distracted by that. Listen, you might be like Crispus, 
where in times past you've rejected the terms of the gospel. Someone came to you and they told you that Jesus Christ came to earth, the Son of God came to earth and died for you, bled out and rose again the third day that you might receive him and get forgiveness for your eternal soul. Someone's told you that before, you've heard that. But maybe you rejected it. Maybe you weren't ready then to receive it. So I have to pose this question to you today. Are you ready to receive it now? Like, are the words of God compelling? Like, have you been stirred today? And if you, ha you have, it's time to come ask hard questions. Crispus had to leave the synagogue and go next door. And I'm asking you to leave your seat and come up front. There'll be leaders up here waiting behind the worship team to sit down with you and to talk to you about the gospel and explain to you what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you know that's you today, and you know that it's time, don't hesitate. I'm going to pray for you now. Don't anyone hesitate. I've been a bad friend. I can count on others, but they can't count on me. I need to come forward and get prayer. I'm insecure, and when I, and when I feel rejected, I shut down. That's me. I've got to come forward and get prayer. I've got to put that down. I've got to lay that down before the Lord. If, if any of these are you, come forward and deal with that right now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of Paul. Like he couldn't even see. He's like shaking his raiment and getting all angry. He couldn't even see that you weren't done. And we see him ministering to, to Jews and Greeks from this moment on. He wasn't done with the Jews. Because, Lord, you proved to him, you showed him that you weren't done with the Jews. <laughs> like you did more work. There was more work to be done. You, you, hadn't, you hadn't fully given up on them. And so, Lord, I, I just, I pray, Lord, that our faith would be stoked. That we would recognize that, that you are at work in this world and you don't need, you never needed us. You've always ever just wanted us. You want us to be a part. And we play such a minor part. We take ourselves so seriously, which is good, I guess, if it, if it makes us intense for your gospel's sake and it, and it helps us to press in. But sometimes we take ourselves so seriously that we, we somehow think that because, we, because the gospel's been rejected that somehow we've been rejected. And so, Lord, I, I pray we get perspective and that, we've been, that we be liberated from that thinking and that, Lord, you would move us around, that we would just be a servant of your beckoning, that we would move around from people to people, to person to, from person to person, and that we would share the gospel everywhere we go, completely liberated, completely set free, only trusting the work to you, and unafraid of losing our reputation. So help us with that. We, we serve you. You've done it all. It's your grace. We love you. We want to serve you, and we want to do it rightly, so teach us how. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.li.com.